Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai, and today I'm honored to welcome one of the most significant national figures in the field of public health and mental health, Dr. Tom Insel. His 40-year career includes groundbreaking work in behavioral research and the use of drugs in treating mental illness, a long tenure leading the National Institute of Mental Health, and a stop at Google, where he explored the role of smartphones and how they can play a role in diagnosis and treatment, just to name a few of the many, many highlights. He's currently chairman of the board of the Steinberg Institute. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks, Rishi. It's a delight to be here. And I should add that part of why I'm here is I'm kind of on a campaign to promote some nonprofit work that we're doing, both a new newsletter called Mindsight News, which we want anybody with an interest in mental health to sign up for, mindsightnews.org, and also a book coming out called Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, which will be out in about three months. And we'll be talking about some of the topics that are in that book. Fantastic. Thank you for for mentioning that. We'll definitely get to that today. And to maybe build up to how we got to the book and to the site, do you mind just walking me through what got you started down your path in medicine? Like what got you first kind of interested in medicine in the first place? I came from a medical family. So I was the youngest of four sons and my father was an eye surgeon. And in our family, there wasn't a lot of choice. <laughs> well, my dad used to say that you could do whatever you wanted in life, but you had to go to medical school first because that was your basic education. So the same way that a lot of parents say you have to finish high school, the rule in our family was you had to finish medical school, hopefully before you were 21. So there was you know, not just <laughs> the expectation, but the expectation that you'd be at the top of your class and four years younger than anybody else in your class. And I, th- I must say my older three brothers, I think, met that expectation. I failed miserably. I was not a good student, nor was I really sure that I wanted to go into medicine. I just couldn't figure out exactly what else I want to do. And that's where psychiatry became really attractive and neuroscience, the study of the brain, even more attractive. This idea that we could begin to uh, use the tools of science to understand how we think, how we feel, how we behave. I just got obsessed with that as a medical student. And I went ahead and did a residency in psychiatry and even did some clinical research in psychiatry, but pretty quickly jumped ship to become a neuroscientist. And I actually spent most of my career at the bench doing some fundamental basic studies on complex social behavior and trying to understand what are the brain pathways? What are the brain messengers that really matter for that? My lab did a lot of the original work on oxytocin and vasopressin as a sort of pro-social hormones mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how do they work and what do they do? So it's not, I wouldn't recommend that path for most people who want to get into healthcare, but it was for me a matter of just trying to figure out what am I most excited about? And in any given point in my career following my passion. And so that's how I became a neuroscientist and later got into public service and running the NIMH at a time when they wanted a neuroscientist to be in charge of mental health. So a lot mentioned there, especially going back about your father, you said you had three older siblings that all went through medical school by the age of 21. Did I hear that right? I think they probably didn't quite make it by 21, but they were young. I think they were all 22, 23 by the time they finished. Yeah. 
Got it. And it sounds very interesting because your father suggested maybe in a very forced way that you get your MD and then you choose your path. And it sounds like for yourself, you were sort of attracted to that field of medicine anyway. Was that true of your siblings as well? I'm just curious if they all... Yeah. So so we all ended up doing quite different things. Everybody went into medicine and everybody kind of trained with a residency, two in medicine, one in pediatrics. One brother became an academic at UCSD and in pharmacology and did basic research on G protein receptors and very successfully and had a spectacular career. One got into vaccine development very early on at Harvard and was part of the team that developed the first H flu vaccine. And then after doing lots of different things in molecular medicine, ended up becoming lead scientist at JDRF, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, now works for J&J. And the third one became a real doctor. He was the only one that actually ended up practicing. He went into private practice in endocrinology as just a spectacular clinician who loves what he does and will probably never retire and works in Tucson where he has a very faithful following of grateful patients and has done beautiful work. So we've all kind of carved somewhat different paths, but we all have MD after our names and uh, None of us became eye surgeons. That was probably the telling detail. That's really funny. And it would be interesting to, to have a Thanksgiving with your family to see your father's reflections now that everyone's kind of grown up. I'm, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's always interesting. In the, uh, the psychiatrist in me always listens for what people don't say as much as what they do say. And so yeah. it is, you know, it's the case that in, in this, I think we all compromise to the extent that we... We were willing to go through the medical school requirement, but none of us were willing to actually do the ophthalmology <laughs> residency, uh, even if we could have gotten in, which was pretty hard to do in those days. Exactly. So, you know, your research in the 80s, as I've come to understand, is a big part of why mental health has been on this track that it's been on. There's been more interest in using pharmaceuticals to help with many of the disorders. As you reflect on where we are now uh, in 2021, what, what is your sense on how your research has been interpreted, used to benefit folks with these various illnesses? So I did a little bit of clinical work early on, uh, mostly trying to understand whether medicines would help people with OCD at a time when OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, was not considered uh, treatable except by psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. So this really dates me. I mean, this was, <laughs> it was really in the late Pleistocene we're talking about. This is a long time ago, so probably early 80s. And our work at the National Institute of Mental Health showed pretty clearly that in fact, certain antidepressants, particularly those that block the reuptake of serotonin, seem to be quite effective for people with obsessive compulsive disorder. And that kind of changed the game. It wasn't, I don't think it was welcome news to psychoanalysts who, had a cohort of very faithful patients who continue to pay mm -hmm. and come and never get better, which was kind of what you want in psychoanalysis. But it did, I think, provide something of value to patients. And it later did reveal that maybe not all antidepressants were the same and that those that blocked serotonin reuptake might be particularly an interesting avenue for development. But I left all that a long time ago. I do think to your question, a real tension in the field has been the role of medications uh, in the treatment of mental illness. And are we over-medicating people? Or are we under-medicating people? And the, the data support both. 
In fact, there are people who get medicines who probably shouldn't. There are a lot of people who need them and would benefit from them who don't get care with medication. My own feeling about this, just to, like to put this in a broader perspective, is that psychiatry over the last 30 or 40 years has fought hard for respect. Now, the field, kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield part of medicine, like we don't get no respect here, was a sense from a lot of people that were not given our due. When I actually, even when I was finishing medical school and people would say, what are you going to go into? And I would say, oh, I'm thinking about psychiatry. They say, well, look, here, you know, you got to learn the basic maxim here is that internists know everything, do nothing. Surgeons know nothing, do everything. Psychiatrists know nothing, do nothing. And pathologists know everything, do everything, but too late. <laughs> and in that maxim, you know, it's not great for psychiatrists because a lot of the people who just don't have anything to offer. And so I think what happened over these last few decades, there's been this real hunger for kind of incorporating psychiatry into medicine and showing that not only did we have medications that were effective, but that the medical model was the right model for that. These are in fact brain disorders. And I've been the person perhaps as much as any to perpetrate this idea that these are brain disorders that should be treated the way we treat other medical illnesses. Mm -hmm. I have to say over the last four or five years, while I've been much more on the front lines of care and looking at all the people who are not in care and people who are homeless and in prison and jail and who are really struggling with serious mental illness, I continue to believe that there's a very important role for medicine and that the medications that have been developed for psychiatric illnesses are actually quite effective at reducing symptoms. And they are in some ways comparable to what we have in the rest of medicine. But I also believe even more strongly that we have to think beyond reducing symptoms and we have to think beyond what medications can do to take a much more holistic view of what people need. And what they need is what I often call the three Ps. It's, it's people, place, and purpose. They need a whole bunch of things that are not part of the medical model anymore. I say anymore because at one point they, they were more part of the medical model, but this idea that we help people recover, we help them to get a life, it's more than just reducing hallucinations and delusions or improving mood. It's about giving people the social support they need, the environment, the place they need, and the purpose, the, 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 something to live for, something that they care about. That's really the essence of recovery. It's what we need to do for people with mental illness. And we're not doing that. And, and listen, more Prozac or more Seroquel doesn't do that. The medicines are important and they're a piece of it. But in the full run of what people need to recover, they may be necessary, but entirely insufficient. So just to keep on that thread of people, place, and purpose, and I'm thinking about you know, smartphones, you know, I'm a pediatrician, I have young folks coming into my office, uh, and seeing me, almost all of them talk about the number of hours they spend on their smartphones. It's everyone knows this, it's gone up. They're not around a lot of people physically, they're not able to with COVID. But even before that, in terms of place, I'm not sure how you define place, but I was just thinking of the physical location. They're often isolated. Uh, nowadays, that's that's pretty much par for the course. And in terms of purpose, I think a lot of them find purpose through essentially external validation, right, uh, of some sort. And I'm just curious, as you think about the role, not just of smartphones, but social media in general, how does that factor into the medical model and, and how it's influencing these three Ps, as, as you put it? 
Yeah, well, I think smartphones plus COVID mm -hmm. make all of this worse, right? I mean, I, as you mentioned in the introduction, I spent some time at Alphabet, or in my case, it was at Verily, one mm -hmm. of the Alphabet companies that does healthcare. And I've also co-founded a series of digital mental health companies, and I'm an advisor, and I work in a you know in some capacity in, in many of these. So I have a deep belief and hope that technology will help us to fix some aspects of mental health care, particularly engagement and quality and accountability. I think those are three things that you can do really well with technology. But I'm I'm not naive. I mean, I think we have to recognize that up until now, it's likely that technology has done more damage than benefit for mental health, that particularly for young people, it's, and it's not just through cyberbullying, but it's through uh, this kind of toxic positivity, uh, you know, the, the lack of authenticity in interactions. There's so many aspects of social media that have become frankly toxic and really bad for mental health. And at this point, you know, I think the challenge is getting kids off this stuff because for so many of them, it is truly an addiction and not one that's helpful. So we've got a challenge. I'd like to think of this like any other technology. It's kind of a, it's a two-edged sword. You can you can use it for benefit. You can use it for harm. We have to get really smart about how to use this for benefit. And I do think the opportunities there, particularly around mental health, there's a lot we can do with technology to fix the problems in the mental health care system. But we also have to be mindful that there's a lot of damage that can be done as well. So just pulling out some of the threads you mentioned. So it's it's addictive. You mentioned it. On par, it feels like it's done more harm than good. You said, we know young people are exposed to it. I have a five-year-old. I'm expecting a baby on the way. What do you tell parents when they're thinking about the fact that these addictive, more harm than good devices are available ubiquitously? Schools use them, as you know. What advice do you have for young parents that are thinking, gosh, I don't want my kid vaping. I don't want my kid abusing drugs. And maybe I don't want my kid using this other class of devices that, that experts are saying does more harm than good on net and, and is addictive. What do you tell them? So we went through the same thing when I was a kid around television, right? Mm -hmm. you know, the, the whole thing was that television was going to warp our minds and shrink our brains and all that. And, and it's, in some ways, this is not that different. I, I think the message is not so much um, don't use, but be mindful about what they're used for. I mean, there's, it's hopeless to try to get kids to stay off the internet. There's, that's not going to happen. It might happen with a five-year-old. It's not going to happen with a 15-year-old, mm -hmm. I guarantee you, or a 12-year-old, especially like my grandson, who does a really good job of helping me navigate the internet, especially new social media sites. I'm actually more concerned about parents' use of uh, technology that, uh, you know, I can't tell you because I now spend a lot of time with young kids, how often I'm at a playground or a pool or someplace where there are parents and kids around and the parents are locked into their phones and the kids are like just out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. uh, that worries me uh, as much as whatever the kids are doing on their technology. Yeah, so sure. this has been, uh, this is one of those transformative technologies and we have got to figure our way through this 
I often say that we're in the first chapter of a five chapter book or maybe the first act of a five act play. And, and I don't think we've quite figured it out. Mm-hmm. I think we're now becoming aware of some of the threats and some of the harms. And I think all of us are perfectly aware if we use Amazon Prime or we use Google to look stuff up, but we're aware of the benefits. Uh, those aren't going away. We're not going to give this up, but figuring out how to how to balance those and ensure that we're getting something of value without being addicted and without losing control over this. And there are companies that are actually trying to think this through for us. You know, can you, if you go to a black and white screen, does that help if you put caps on the time? And so you have automatic off time, are there ways of scheduling around it and, you know, and putting for kids limits on what they see and how they see it. So there's just a bunch of things that people are thinking about to help us manage this rather than being managed by it. But we're not there yet. And I do have concerns in terms of kids who are growing up with this, what it's going to do to their mental health in terms of being able to operate in real life and interact with people in a way that is healthy and and authentic. That makes sense. And and I've definitely seen what you're talking about with parents just completely glued to their phones. And it's really ironic because I think a lot of us bring our kids to playgrounds to learn how to socialize. And it feels like the kids are doing a pretty darn good job of it. And that the parents are actually pretty antisocial as not not in the psych (laughs) sense, but like in the sense of like not really talking to one another or or commingling or demonstrating that virtue that we're sending our kids off to learn. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's right. And and of course, the kids pick that up. We're modeling this behavior for them, especially when we don't notice it. So, you know, at the outset, you talked about a book. I'd love to dive into that. Just understand the impetus for writing it, who you imagine the intended audience for the book to be and what they might draw from the book that might benefit their life. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. The, The book was like a lot of projects. I took it on to try to understand something I couldn't understand. And the conundrum for me was I was looking around and I saw all this enormous progress in neuroscience and genomics, in psychological sciences, this huge progress in research and science. And I saw more people were getting more treatments than ever before. And yet the outcomes were no better. Hmm. And I couldn't, I just couldn't square that, Hmm. those dots. I couldn't make sense of it. So I was trying to figure out like where, what have we done wrong? Why is mortality going up through suicide? Why is morbidity going up with more people homeless, more people disabled, especially with serious mental illness? It just didn't make sense to me. And I remembered when I started in this field like 50 years ago, almost, <laughs> that uh, things were, we did better. People did better, even though we had fewer drugs and fewer things to offer. So I started the book to say, okay, I bet I bet there are some easy fixes here. And originally I thought, well, you know, since I was in the tech sector, that tech was the answer. And I quickly convinced myself that it was maybe part of the answer. It could help us on some issues, but the problems were much more fundamental. And it was really around this issue of recovery. I began to realize that part of why we hadn't done better was we were aiming for the wrong target. We were trying to reduce symptoms instead of helping people to get a life. We'd kind of bought into this idea that mental illness was like an infectious disease. It was a, you know, caused by a simple bug and it could be cured by a simple drug. And it's not, it's more complicated. These are in fact brain disorders. And I ended up saying that the problem is in fact medical. It's a medical problem and it ought to be paid for by insurance like any other medical problem. 
But the solutions are much more than that. The solutions are social, relational. The solutions are environmental. So that's that person, place, and purpose. And the solutions are also political. It needs a, actually a whole new social movement. So the book ends up being a call for a social movement around mental health. And that was actually the genesis of Mindsight News as well. The idea that we need a platform, a place for this national conversation to take place about how we have failed those with mental illness in so many ways. Uh, President Kennedy talked about how in 1963, when he launched the Community Mental Health Act, he said, these people should no longer be alien to our affections. And for a few years in the 1960s and 1970s, they were not. We actually invested and we built out community programs and we trained people with the skills to actually help those with mental illness. And then all that kind of faded away. We closed the state hospitals. There was no longer a capacity to, for people who needed inpatient care. They ended up in jails or prisons, or they ended up in homeless shelters or on the street. We failed to be able to provide good medical care for these folks. So they die 23 years before they should. And they became really one of the most neglected populations in our society, more than any racial or ethnic group. This is a group that you know, in a sense, we're sort of in the Jim Crow era for mental health. These people are not even in care. They're not even on the bus at all. And so the book really is calling out the need for us to notice and to respond and to provide care more than medicine, but to provide the whole range of healthcare. And then those things that today are not even included in healthcare, like people, place, and purpose. Uh, we know how to do this. This isn't, is not a research problem. It's a compassion problem. It's a commitment problem. It's a political problem. And that's really what the book is, was written to do and what I hope Mindsight News will help us to do. And, and what I hope podcasts like this will help to do is to raise awareness that we have really failed those people who are struggling with a, an entirely treatable disorder. We haven't provided the kind of care that we should have. And our grandchildren are going to ask us, how is that even possible that people with schizophrenia were just locked up in jail instead of treated in clinics? How could you have lived through that and allowed that to happen? And that's really what drove the book ultimately was trying to make sure that we wake up to this problem and begin to do something about it. You know, one of the things that I've been really struck by, like you said, you know, this this moral obligation or this feeling of like, how could you possibly stand by and watch this happen? Many cities across America right now are seeing homelessness on the rise and are seeing opiate overdoses on the rise. Like there's so many classic problems that are blowing up. And I think that there's a moral framework around a lot of those things. There's also a medical framework around those things. And you, you proposed kind of this medical framework. I'm curious because you said that there's a political aspect to it. Do you feel like there's been some level of polarization around that? Like, do you feel there's any pushback on that idea and saying, no, no, you know, folks that are out there, out there for a reason, they have to get their act together. They have to hit rock bottom before that, you know, you've heard all these phrases. I know that. And so I'm yeah. just curious if you, if you get a lot of pushback and if that pushback feels like it's coming from individuals or if there's like a political pushback as well. Yeah, it's a good question, Rishi. I don't get a lot of pushback. I think there's real frustration with the homeless crisis because it's been just so hard to solve. And people seem to think that we ought to be able to do better on this. And I, I think they're right. I'll 
say something about that in a moment, but your comment, your question actually remind me of the, we talk a lot about the sort of social determinants of health, but I think there's this new term of the moral determinants of health, which is equally compelling. And if you haven't had Don Berwick mm -hmm. on the podcast, highly recommend you talk to Don about the moral determinants. He's written about that. And it's, to me, it's been a very powerful construct and one that I think is important for mental health as well. I don't get a lot of pushback around these issues. I must say, I think they are bipartisan. When you talk to politicians about mental health issues, you discover pretty quickly everybody's got a story and every family's mm -hmm. been affected. And in my years in Washington, I had some of the most conservative Republicans as supportive as the most progressive Democrats. In fact, in some cases, even more supportive based on their personal experience. So for most people, they get it. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, a very liberal member of the Senate, Bennett, and a very conservative member of the Senate, Cornyn, uh, did a white paper together mm. saying, you know, we've got to start paying attention to mental health. And it's not a partisan issue, as they said in their report, it's a personal issue. And I, I do think the time has come. You have to be careful, I think, not to frame it in partisan or political terms, even though I said that there's a political aspect to this. But I think it's political in the old sense of it's about policies. Mm -hmm. It's about saying we are going to pay for things that work or we are going to ensure that there is parity, which is a policy mm -hmm. for mental health and substance abuse, uh, as well as all medical illnesses. So I think, yes, there's that kind of important focus on policy, but it's probably best not to create a partisan divide around this, because right now there isn't one. Right now, there, this is one of the few areas <laughs> in America that I think does enjoy bipartisan support. Well, that's a fantastic point and probably one that makes it stand out as, as a place to start working together on something that's positive. As we close, I'd love to get your advice. So we have a lot of folks in the audience that are interested in a career in healthcare, maybe pushed along by their own fathers uh, or, or their own volition. But what's some advice on how they can meet the challenges of the moment? And you mentioned kind of act one out of five acts, things are going to shift and change as, as we go forward, how to remain nimble and, uh, and able to adapt to the change that's forthcoming. I don't know if there's a simple answer to that. My advice usually is to go with what you're most passionate about. And I think if you look around and you say, where can I have the biggest impact? Uh, I think, and I believe this deeply, that you have the biggest impact by going where the need is greatest. And the need is greatest in communities of color, communities that are poor, often rural communities, especially in the United States, Native American communities, mm -hmm. that these people, and we're talking about tens of millions of people, are really outside of the bubble that we built to provide quality care. I would add to that, and not just because you're the other end of this conversation, but I you know, I really think that it's critically important for people to think about the needs of kids. The United States has done actually a pretty good job in caring for its elderly. I mean, it's not great, but you know, if you just compare where we were 50 years ago to where we are now, we do better with Medicare, Social Security, all of that. We put a whole bunch of stuff in place for people over 65. For people under the age of five, not so much. We are probably the lowest of all developed countries in the investments we would make, the policies we have, um, the way we 
respond to the needs of kids and families. And that, again, is one of those areas that we should find unacceptable. And so I think for a person coming into the field, that's an opportunity to really change the world of young kids and families to make sure that they're getting the policies, the care, and the kind of, to use the Kennedy phrase, that you know they're no longer alien to our affections, that they are really getting the kind of support in the United States that they would get in any other developed country, that it's shameful that we haven't done better. And I would love to see the next generation take that on and fix it the way my generation did for people over 65. Thanks for that plug. I, I couldn't agree more, both in terms of health as well as education. You know, do you mind just doing one quick last shout out for the the site, the book, where folks can find that information? Yeah, before we go. You bet. www.mindsight with S-I-T-E, Mindsight, not S-I-G-H-T, Mindsight News, all one word, .org is the website for, and please, it's free, sign up, contribute. We're looking for lived experience. We're looking for the voices of everyone anywhere about what they care about related to mental health. And then the book, which won't be out until February 1, but you can pre-order it from Penguin Random House is called Healing Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. And please pre-order. And the more we can pre-order, the more attention it'll get from the reviewers and from everybody else, because this is a book that is really meant to start a movement. And we need to get a lot of people engaged on that. Thank you. I just went to the website and it looks awesome. So congrats on, on that. Thank um, you. Listen, thank you so much for being with us today. That was fantastic. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me and, and good luck with this podcast. I know there, there's a lot of podcasts out there, but I love the fact that you're doing this for people who care about health. Thank you. I'm Risha Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>